Welcome to the Project Unchained podcast, where my special guests and I help you break free from the chains that hold you back from life's greatest experiences. The goal of this podcast is to educate people on self-care modalities that can and will improve your life if you commit to doing them. An effective self-care regimen is the single most important thing that you can do for yourself to have a more extraordinary life experience. I'm your host, Ross Leppola, and I've spent the past several years of my life on a journey of healing and self-care after living my first 28 years chained down by my own limiting thoughts and beliefs. Now, I'm here to share what I've learned with you to empower you to break free from the chains that hold you back from your unlimited potential. Let's get unchained. When you were lost in the woods, you were misunderstood by everyone, everyone. You were searching for words, but they came out absurd. And no one heard you, no one heard you speak your Hey, what's up, y'all? Welcome back to the Project Unchained podcast. I'm your host, Ross Lepola, excited and grateful to be here yet again for another episode. Today, we got Newton Chang back on the show. Newton first joined us on episode 40, Creating a Culture of Support for Mental Health. In there, we talked about his leave of absence from work and his mental health support roles that he does at work, which have been fantastic. It was a really great conversation. I was super stoked to have that with Newton and several other conversations that I've had with Newton since then, which also led to the inspiration of having this podcast and this show where him and I sit down and have some honest, vulnerable conversations around fatherhood and what it's like to be a parent and the things that we need to do to come to the table for ourselves to empower our kids and not pass along our pain and hurt within us. Our kids are going to have their own things that they need to deal with, And they don't need to be burdened with our shit. And that's been one of my big motivating factors to continue on this journey always. I want to pass on as little of my pain and hurt to Rosalie as possible. And I know that one of the only ways to do that is to continually work on myself and elevate my consciousness and awareness. And so I can continue to show up to be the best dad that I can and show up to be the best version of myself that I can that's the only way. And that's what a lot of this is about, is to show up with our best version of ourself, our most authentic version of ourself from a place of love, care, and compassion. And that's really important to do as fathers, as parents. And I'm so I'm excited to have a conversation like this with Newton from parenting, especially considering he has some unique wrinkles in the fold with his kids that you'll get to learn about in this episode. So without further ado, my friend Newton Chang. Newton, my friend, welcome back. It's good to see you. Ross, again. very happy to be back. Uh, you, uh, as as you know, you were the first podcast that I did on anything relating to mental health. So uh, this is a bit of a homecoming. Um, very happy to be back here with you. Yeah, man. I'm happy to be back too because it's been really cool to watch some of the unfolding of your content and message, particularly on LinkedIn, how that's elevated and changed since our first conversation and I, I really appreciate your vulnerability there. I appreciate your dedication to continuing this mental health and well-being journey and being an advocate for it for other people. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I, it's been a pleasure to do it. 
thank you to for creating that opportunity. That's really been a spark for a whole segment of mental health advocacy that I didn't know I could do. But you know, for your listeners who aren't aware, Ross and I recorded an episode back in May 2022. I posted it on LinkedIn. Um, it, during that episode, I talked really openly about my mental health and burnout journey. And it got roughly 20x the engagement of what I normally would get. And so um, Ross created that space. Since then, I've been doing a lot of public speaking gigs and being able to reach and help a lot of people. And so, uh, Ross, thank you for sparking that journey. Yeah, man. That's fantastic to hear. I super appreciate that. And I'm glad that you found that space. That's definitely a big goal of mine and a big intention of mine is creating this space so people can have these conversations. And it's really cool to hear that that conversation continued to extend in other areas and aspects of your life. And through those conversations, through that continued conversation, that's when things can really reach reach more people. Because obviously, I mean, I'm not I'm not Joe Rogan. I don't have a million views in episodes, so I'm not going to reach as many people. But if if these efforts can plant that seed to give you the power and courage to go out and do more on your end, I'm like, fuck yeah, man. That's exciting. Yeah, I, I agree. Fuck yeah. <laughs> it's, it is, it's definitely, <laughs> uh, it's ripples in a pond and it is working. Yeah, man. You, and you never know when that ripple is going to turn into a tsunami. Yes. Like, and that's what we got to so, do. So actually tracing it back, one, one of the stories I think I referred to in your podcast, I heard that literally 10 years before I burned out and went on mental health leave. So another um, senior leader at Google 10 years ago shared about his depression. And when I got yeah. there 10 years later, I remembered that story. So the seed was planted. Right. Yep. That's fantastic. And at the end of the day, like that's all we can do. I'm not, I look at it and always remind myself when I'm doing this work and particularly in the moments where I'm maybe not seeing as many views as I'd like, I just have to remind myself, like, that's not why I'm here. I am a, I'm a gardener. I'm here to plant seeds. Yes. And when I plant that seed and I plant that idea, some of them are going to stick. Some of them are not, not all seeds germinate, not all seeds sprout, but some will. And I have to trust that in the process of planting these seeds, the ones that are meant to sprout will sprout. Yes. And I, I see you as the type of gardener who I don't see you trying to plant your seeds all in neat rows. You're trying to grow a forest. So <laughs> there's going to be a wide <laughs> right. birth. It's going to be organic and it's going to be beautiful and lush someday. Definitely. Definitely. That's the goal. So diving into today, I wanted to have a conversation with you about mental well-being, particularly as a father. You had posted a while back on your social media, on your LinkedIn, about having gone to a program that helped you, empowered you as a father to show up better for your kids. Let's, let's dive in on that. Let's start with a little background about what that program was and is. I believe it was called Track. Uh and yeah. start diving into yeah, it, it. It's actually PACT. So P-A-C-T. Yeah, oh, PACT. Um, so PACT is an organization that seeks to support uh, transracial adoptive families. And what that means is that it's families that were brought together by adoption where the parents are of a different race than the children. 
So for some background, um, my partner and I, uh, we have two daughters, one five years old and one who is now, I believe, just hit 11 months. And uh, we are both Asian American. They are both African American. At PACT, what they seek to do is really teach you there's a lot of trauma related to the adoption process that a lot of the time will just go under the radar if we don't proactively talk about it and try to anticipate it. A lot of the reason that it goes under the radar is that trauma will start to be experienced by the child way before they can start to process and even name and describe their feelings. So for example, um, my older daughter, she's five. When she was, I believe, three, she already started asking questions like, why is my skin a different color than yours? Why don't we have the same hair? Um, we have an uh, open communication with her birth mother, so she knows her birth mother, but she would ask, why don't we live with um, my birth mother? And then lastly, her, her birth father is uh, not in the picture, so she will ask, what happened to my birth father? Where is he? These are all like really sticky questions, and they seem straightforward and informational, yeah. but the the subtext – um, for her as a child can be, do I not have these relationships because there's something wrong with me? Is something wrong with me because I'm different? Um, why was I rejected? And so those are all the things that we need to anticipate proactively. So that's one thing. The other thing that they really tried to teach us is that, hey, we can't read all those things. All we can do is guide and support our children. So in order to be the best guides and the best source of support, we need to do the work on ourselves to really be aware of, hey, what's going on with us? How am I showing up um, with my child, especially in, in moments where she might be acting out and it may, might be related or not related to that trauma? And then how am I helping to regulate the overall system so we can get to a place where we are communicating and taking care of one another. Um, so it really, it goes back to both awareness and then work on myself versus work shaping or, or trying to mold my child, which is not going to work. Uh, I, you know, I, I know many parents have lost that battle. So, <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely, so there's definitely like two big, two big things there that I want to dive in and unpack a little bit on. Let's start with, let's start with a kid. Mm-hmm. When I think about adoption and I try to think about that from the kid's perspective, one of the things that immediately comes to my mind is feelings of inadequacy, feelings of rejection, feeling of not being accepted. I know just from some of my own experiences that are not as traumatic, for lack of a better word. I can't imagine what that would be like to have the knowledge to know that, hey, you know, my parents gave me up and they didn't want me. So now I am here with these other people. Mm -hmm. And so I couldn't imagine the stories and the self-talk that would start to rattle off in my mind. What, what kind of tools do they give you and talk about there to help manage 
to help teach them that that they do belong, that they are accepted, that they are loved. So I'll I'll point to the the speaker who sticks most with me. He was a um a guy named Brian Post. And his model it it touches on what I was saying where it really starts with emotional regulation for me first. So let's say my daughter starts going in that direction of where she starts to indicate like, hey, why was I put up for adoption? Uh, is there something wrong with me? It would not be – I mean it would be pretty understandable if you as a parent, you go, oh, shit. Uh, oh, crap. Like how do I handle this? Like so if I go into a place of alarm and I just start getting either defensive or trying to defuse the situation – like that's where I think you can make, you know, some potential missteps. Like if I if I try to minimize, or I try to push aside our concerns, be like, no, 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 that's that's not what happened. You're fine. Everyone loves you. Um, then I've just kind of like minimized her feelings, and now they go underground, and she processes them alone. And yeah. you know, one one of the things one of the other speakers said was, no child should have to hold on to that alone. And so that's where oh, I need to say like, no, 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 do not have that reflex. You got to let that out in the open. You have to let it be felt between you or else she's going to hold on to that alone. And that's, that's step one is like you can't run from it and you can't smother it or hide it. Yeah, that makes total sense to me as one of the perspectives that I hold is suppression is depression mm. of of any kind. So anytime you suppress any of that stuff, it's going to cultivate to some degree, some level of depression. And the more you suppress, the more depression there's going to be. Can, can you- The more you hide from it. Uh, oh, I was just going to say, can you put that on a t-shirt? Because I think like I have right. expert level suppression skills and having it on my chest, seeing me, <laughs> looking at me in the mirror, I think would actually be um, helpful for me and maybe helpful for a few people who might see me walking down the hall. Right. Well, maybe maybe I'll have to start an apparel line for Project Unchained. <laughs> but the big thing that was real, relatable there for me was, like, I remember when I was bullied, and a lot of times I would get the the standard quote, oh, sticks and stones may break your bones, but words may never hurt you. And I never had the words for it at the time, but I can reflect on it now and realize the problem I had with that was it minimized and negated my own experience. Mm. And as a result, I became like just emotionally incapable because I didn't have help learning how to process that. Yeah. And so I love the fact that it starts off with bringing that out, like facing it head on together and allowing the kid to feel and experience and express it so that they can learn how to express it in a healthy way and let it go. Yeah. Yeah. I, actually, so two dots I hadn't connected. Um, one of the, th the things that I'm doing for work on myself and therefore how I show up with my daughter, I've been trying to be open about with her when I'm struggling with depression and what that's like. And so um, a, a story I like to tell is a, a one time I was I was feeling down, you know. I was somewhat depressed. I'm putting my um, getting my daughter ready for bed, 
And I decided, you know what? I'm, I'm going to talk about this with her. I'm just going to put it out in the open, like, let's normalize this. And so I, you know, I, I sit next to her and I tell her, hey, I just wanted to let you know, like right now I'm feeling what's called depression. And for me, what that feels like is even though nothing's wrong, I feel sad and I feel a little extra tired. But I just want you to know that even when I'm depressed, um, I still love you and I'm still here to take care of you. And then, you know, she said, I love you too, which was nice and heartwarming. And then I said, can I have a hug? Because that would make me feel a lot better. And she screamed no and ran away laughing. And so the what I take from that is, okay, like we had that conversation and I think she understood me. And by the end of it, she still felt like she could be a kid and playful. I'm like, okay, I'm going to take that as a win. And so I'm hoping that if she ever feels similarly, um, you know, via that conversation or others, she'll remember like, okay, this is okay. And we can talk about this. Right. Yeah. And it's difficult to have some of those conversations. I mean, I, I think about it again, like I was, I suppressed for so long for so many years, I didn't know how to have these conversations. So I'm still in a way learning how to have some of these conversations. What about, what do you do to help instill your kids with that sense of belonging and that sense of love and acceptance? Hmm. I think a, a really basic one that may, depending on your cultural background, might seem like, yeah, that's a no-brainer. And for people, say, of uh, Asian-American descent, this might seem, um, seem game-changing. I try to tell my daughter I love her up to and maybe including the point of annoying her. And so there's a, this really interesting trend I've seen recently on YouTube where these um, content creators, they'll be in Japan or they'll be in China, and they'll go to – they'll find um, senior folks on the street. It might be in their 60s, 70s, or 80s, and they ask them, I want you to call up your kid and tell them you love them. And for them, this is actually the first time they've ever done that in their entire life. And so they they do the call. The child is extremely confused because <laughs> they're now an adult oh, wow. child. Right. And then the adult gets off the phone and they start crying because they've always felt it and they've but culturally they couldn't go there. And so that's for for me as uh, someone of Asian American descent, that is step one. You know, my my parents weren't that repressed. We weren't also that touchy feely. So now I'm, I'm, I, I don't know that you can over index, but I'm like, you know what? I'm not leaving any of this unsaid. So it'll be consistent. Like every time uh, I see her, like there's always going to be an I love you. Um, and I will chase her down with hugs. And uh, even if she runs from me, as long as I put in the effort. So that, that's kind of like the, the step one, most basic, simple behavioral level. Might be a little bit of a sidetrack here, but I'm curious. What is it about the Asian culture? Where does it come from that there isn't as much of the expression of I love you to, to the kids from the parents? That is a really good question. I actually don't know. 
it, it, it's one of those things where um, I, if I asked a bunch of my Asian American friends, they would agree. Many would agree like, oh, yeah, my parents never did that. I don't think any of us have, at least in the conversations I've been, none of us have asked like, hey, why is that? Um, Interesting. Huh. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'll go do some Googling after this. <laughs> well, I guess now we, we, leave a, we leave a rock unturned. Yes. Or, or rather we turn a rock over that ha- doesn't have an answer under it. Yeah. We're, we're scratching that's our okay. heads a little bit. That's, that's okay. I, I don't think we have to know the answer to all these questions. I think it's just important to explore. I I think another thing that I try to do is I think times where I might get as a child like reprimanded for acting out or, you know, being, uh, you know, as a child, like, you know, just just partying and going nuts in the house and creating noise. I sometimes I do want my daughter to calm down or be quiet but it's not because I want her to be different. It's because, say, my head hurts or something. And so I try to differentiate between those things where like, am I asking you this because I need something or am I asking you this because I think you should be different? And I try to never do the second one. Yeah. Yeah, I'm like, That's- like I'm sorry. I'm really tired. I need. I, I just need a moment of quiet. Like, could could I have like just a few moments? And I try to make it about like, this is my need. This is not your deficiency. Yeah. I love hearing that. To me, the thing that I hear and connect with from that is you're, you're prioritizing, as I've talked about and, and thought about it, connection over correction. Hmm. You're focused on connecting with her and the kid rather than telling them what to do. And I know that when I can stay in that space and I can stay in this idea of focus on connection before anything else, everything else flows so much easier after that, flows so much easier after that. And it's also interesting to think about like how many times people will try to control or correct. And all that does is cut off any chance of connection. Mm-hmm. And when we do that, when we sit there and correct and tell them what to do, they lose the ability to know how to do things for themselves. And I think about even just, even just little things like Rosalie doesn't like to wear shoes. She's a Mm. barefoot kid. She likes to be barefoot as much as possible. And so one of the things that we try to be really aware of is like, okay, what's the environment going to be like? And do we give a shit about the shoes or not? Last weekend, we went to Mardi Gras in New Orleans. We got to bring some shoes. <laughs> like, there's, yes. there's no question. We got to bring some shoes. Going to Costco? No, we don't need shoes. Mm-hmm. And the people will say, oh, where's your shoes? Where are your shoes? And she looks at them like, what? It's none of your business. Mm-hmm. And it isn't. Right? Like And it's so funny to watch how she reacts to strangers when they're acknowledging that she doesn't have shoes or they're pushing and projecting that she should be wearing shoes and Mm. she can pick up on the difference and, and that like it. So it's really interesting to see that. And man, it's so powerful in helping any young person, 
or anybody for that matter, even adults, helps all of us feel a lot more accepted and feel a sense of belonging when we don't sit there and try and tell each other what to do. Mm. Nobody wants to be told what to do on any level, especially a kid. And yeah. there's this weird there's this weird like authoritarian paradigm in parenting a lot of times in a lot of places where I'm the parent what I say goes don't question my authority you will listen obey and be obedient and all this crap mhm fuck all that <laughs> yeah you know it, it's interesting like I um my daughter will do things like some days she'll just be like I want to wear my cat halloween costume like I I go great let's do it um and so, you know, she'll be the, the kid dressed like a cat walking around in June or whatever. And I think it's great. If I think back to when I was a kid, I think up through maybe high school, early high school, I similarly, not, not similar to her, but maybe similar to other kids or similar to how our generation was raised. I thought there was like a, a right and a wrong and an acceptable and an unacceptable to how you show up. And it was pretty narrow. Right. Um, somewhere around high school, uh, one of my older siblings who I don't get along with, like he, my perception is he showed up very much in this way. And, and in retrospect, it came from a place I think of wanting to be accepted because I didn't get along with him. I kind of said, fuck it. I'm going to do the opposite. And so I just started doing whatever I wanted. Like, I'm going to show up to school in my pajamas, see what happens. Like, I'm wearing bedroom slippers. I'm going to do this weird thing and see what happens. And so I, I won't say it came from the most positive place. It was very much like I need to differentiate from this person who I don't agree with. But it kind of experimented me to this like same sense of freedom of like, oh, wait, I can do whatever I want. I can I can express myself and the reaction from society, it was somewhat like some people were kind of confused, but there was actually so much more support and admiration, which led me to believe, I think more of us want to be more free. Um, but many of us are scared to do it. So we, um, at our worst times, we hold back those who are trying to be different at our better times. We at least support and admire them. And then maybe at our most enlightened, we, you know, really go for it and, and let ourselves be who we really are. Yeah, I can, I can get behind that. I think a lot of times, especially when I look at it from like when, when somebody really dislikes somebody, whether it be like a, a politician or a sports star or a movie star or somebody that's really popular. And it seems that everybody either really likes them or really hates them. It's usually because they're doing whatever they want. <laughs> yeah. And you really like them because you also like to do those same things that they do. And you really don't like them because you're mad that they're doing the things that they want to do and you're not doing the things that you want to do, which is a reflection of self. Absolutely. Totally agree. And like – Speaking of reflection of self, like there's that whole other side to unpack where you're told it comes back to yourself. What's up with that? Expand on that a little bit for me. So before we got going, we started to talk a little bit about 
I'll start with the topic of uh, intergenerational trauma, and you can you can think of that like for for me that topic goes a lot to my Asian up, Asian American upbringing. It's more complex than that, you know. I have baggage right. that's related to that. I have baggage that is not related to that. But um, the things that I have to be aware of, like for example, sometimes my daughter, if I ask her to do something and she doesn't respond. Versus saying, hmm, I wonder why she didn't respond. Like maybe she didn't hear me. Maybe she's focused on something else. I will have an immediate anger reaction and say she is being disrespectful. And so I, you know, I, I, I was raised such that like, yeah, you listen to your parents. Like that, that is like, it, it's, it's clear like how the hierarchy works and how you respond. Not to say that they were unkind or cruel or anything, but there was just a very clear expectation. And so that's that's in me now, and that is a an emotional reflex. And so if I haven't been practicing being aware of what's going on for me, I can just go into an automatic cycle of, she's being disrespectful, I need to correct that. And then we're into conflict real fast. Um, so this morning I, I asked her, like, can you please go get dressed? And she kind of just stared at me blankly. And the immediate thing that triggered was she's being disrespectful or she's trying to defy me. She's testing boundaries. And then I took a breath and I just paused. And then I said, again, like, can you please go get dressed? And she got up and got dressed. And that was it. Like, there, it didn't have to be a thing. Like she's, there's many reasons why a five-year-old might not be able to focus on what you asked them to do. Right. Uh, like I, we, we should probably be more amazed at the times that they actually are able to do that, uh, given like, you know, how playful and curious she is. Right. Yep. I totally, I totally get that. Can relate to that a lot. I have a, a similar pattern in one of the ways that I've been working on this idea of like breaking that down is I think about how we're often told, you know, respect your elders, respect your elders, mm -hmm. respect your elders. Well, the idea of respect is earned, not given, or we have to yeah. start off from a place of mutual respect and not a, you dance monkey, show me that you're an obedient person and I'll respect you. Like that in itself is disrespectful. If I, just walk around barking orders and she's supposed to be this obedient child because she's smaller than me. How is that showing respect for her as a person and as a human? That's treating her as less than. That is the definition of disrespect. So I need to show up treating her as an equal and giving mm -hmm. her a voice and an opportunity to agree or disagree with me, whether I fucking like it or not. You know, like we have... Family contributions, and one of her family contributions is to feed the animals. And if she chooses not to feed the animals, you know, I have a couple of choices. I can remind her and ask her. I can do it myself, or I can be pissed off and yell at her. And mm -hmm. I know that the last option is not going to do anything for anybody. Yeah. And when I slow down and realize, well, why... Why is feeding the why is feeding the animals her responsibility? Like I was the one that chose to get a dog. Mm. She didn't choose to get the dog. 
She didn't choose to get the cats. Why is it her responsibility? She didn't make any of those choices. Hmm. So why should I project what is really my responsibility onto her? Hmm. Now who am I really pissed at? Myself. Interesting. And and when when she decides, yeah, I want to own that responsibility. Have you talked with her? Like, why does she decide to do that? I mean, at at the end of the day, a lot of it is just her being a kid and being in the flow of being a kid. And all that mm. stuff like comes and goes. One day she's yeah. like super in love with the animals and wants to do everything possible to make sure that they live as long as possible. Oh, Rosalie, you know how you can do that? You can make sure that they have food and water. You know, and that was kind of the start of those being her family contributions. And she did it. But then there's days where it's like, I don't really want to do that. Okay. Mm. And so instead of me thinking about it, like, no, that's your job. You do it. You're like, you mm-hmm. know what? Okay. I got you. I can help you. And trying to remind myself that it, it doesn't have to be all her. Like we're, mm. we're, we're supposed to be a team. And using those kinds of thought processes to help me reel myself back in from being upset over what doesn't need to be upset about is beneficial. Yeah. yeah, uh, That reminds me of back to Brian Post, who was at the PAC Transracial Adoptive Family Camp. One of the things he said that it kind of broke my brain a little bit and I have to reflect on it pretty regularly was there is no evidence that disrespectful behavior as a child leads to disrespectful behavior as an adult. Nice. And I I had never heard it said that way, but that was just a core assumption of like, yeah, if I see this behavior as a child, it's going to escalate, it's going to take root, and you will end up raising an improperly socialized adult. And that pretty much... He just said like, no, that's incorrect. And so I, I, I'm still trying to get my head around it and still like really see if I can act as if I 100% believe that. And I can, I can feel it's like at odds with deep-rooted beliefs that I still hold on to. One of the things that comes up to my mind for stuff like that and as it related to what we were talking about before that is like when you look at and study any of the like masculine and feminine energy dynamics. And you understand that like feminine is that emotional flow and they flow all over and they change their mind and, and it all changes based on like what they're feeling in the moment and what their emotions are in the moment and what love is being poured into them and what love they're able to pour back out as a result of it pouring into them. Whereas like masculinity and and masculine processes and energies are a lot more like structure, discipline, process orientated, task this, task that. So it's very different. And the thing about children is they're all in the feminine emotion. They're all in that energetic state. Mm. So especially that six-year-old, that five-year-old is in that, that flow of emotion and I thought it was really cool. One of the books that I was reading on it, The Way of the Superior Man from David Dieta, talks about how like the feminine flow 
and it's changing its mind based on how it feels and what it wants based on how it feels. Therefore, the feminine doesn't lie. It's not a lie. It's just a change. It's a shift and a change. So when I look at it that way, when Rosalie is excited to feed the animals or not excited to feed the animals, if I'm good and I'm grounded in myself, I look at it as, what am I doing to fill her bucket so that she feels the love and radiance in the family so that she wants to contribute? Mm. Yeah, that's it. That's interesting. Um I've, I don't mean this to sound pejorative. I've, <laughs> I've referred to my child as like a super smart Roomba. Okay. Where her, her job is to just keep bouncing off the walls and learning things. Yep. And so she's, she, you know, the walls being not just like the physical walls, but just like the, the things she might experience day to day or in, in the room, in the atmosphere. And to take it all in and kind of explore and try and and do and see what she wants to make of it. And like my brain just keeps like turning things into bullet lists and plans and things to be done. Um, and it it reminds me of um, there's a, a book I'm reading right now called The Regenerative Life by Carol Sanford, who is a She's a uh, researcher, thought leader on regenerative practices and complex systems. And she talks about these four paradigms for living that we we uh, can elevate to. And the most basic one is just, I think it's called create value, where it's um, you kind of look around, you see problems to be solved, you get it done. It's like the, the rise and grind uh, approach to life. And not to say that's not helpful, but it can't be your only mode. Then from there, there's a, uh, I think it's called arrest disorder, where you start trying to organize and optimize. From there, then there's one called do good, where you start to say, hey, there's a higher purpose to all of this. And so how do I, yes, I need to arrest disorder, I need to create value for the purpose of what? And then after that, and this is where I'm trying to live, and it's it's really hard because it's complex, is re the regenerative system where you start to think about, if I apply it to my life, the way I would describe it is thinking holistically, like, what is the life that I want to live and I want to build? And I've tacked on all these different parts, like there's there's uh, work, there's there's parenting and being a husband, there is being a competitive athlete. And so how do I need to show up in each of those in order to build a life I want? And then the really complex part is how do these actually connect? Like where do they conflict and where do they reinforce with one another? And I struggle to navigate at that level because I think I try to break things into plans and bullet lists and project, you know, Gantt charts. Right. Whereas what you were saying with feminine energy and what, what a Carol Sanford would um, recommend is you um, you really learn how to the term I've heard is dance with the system, right? You know, like uh, you you have recently taken a partner dance and right. you you realize it's this very organic give and take. Like, yeah, there's steps and there's a routine, but you kind of co create it as you go based on like the feel and the flow with your partner, right? And that's where I'm trying to get to with my life uh, and with these roles of husband and father, athlete and leader in the workplace. Definitely. There's all kinds of different ways could take that. 
there's so many different conversations here. <laughs> yeah, I think that I, we could go through each of those four levels and turn them into a podcast. Right, for sure. And the one of the things that really stood out to me was like how you were saying trying to find out how to dance with it, so to speak. Because mm-hmm. that's also something that I struggle with myself, right? I also create structure and routine that helps my behavior. That helps me show up with the behavior that I want to show up with. But when a, a wrench gets thrown in the cog and something changes, I struggle with the flexibility of it. I struggle with that dance. I struggle with making making a different move because that was the one that I mm. planned now, but I got to do this one. And so a lot of it is for me trying to practice non-attachment and create systems that are flexible, create, you know, have, have the different steps and routines and things that I have in place, but be unattached to how and when they occur. Mm. Then that way I can have the flexibility that is, that's needed in life because we have to be somewhat flexible in life. We can't be, you know, there's, there's a difference between having structure and being too rigid in the structure. We have to have that flexibility or we're just going to cause stress and hardship that doesn't need to be caused. Do you have like some examples of where that shows up? Like I I look at the beautiful office behind you that I know you built and while learning on the fly, and I'm guessing it's riddled with stories about things not working out the way you planned. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. The the floor was a big one. There is all kinds of problems with the floor that caused me all kinds of extra time. Um, I, I saw some uh, some Instagram posts where it looked like you guys had poured a bunch of epoxy on the, the floor and there was just a comment around like, this didn't go how we had planned. And I just see this like big concrete floor with a dun- bunch of liquid spread across it and I'm like, good luck. I hope <laughs> I hope that resolves itself. Yeah. <laughs> No, it, it it turned out great. It was there was just a lot of extra work in getting the floor prepped and things of that nature. But it it becomes one of those things for me of instead of getting so upset at what's coming to me, just it is what it is. I can't do anything about it. All I can do is mm-hmm. the next thing. And there's a lot of times where that attachment to outcome can be the thing that I have to navigate and learn to dance better with. Cause all it does is cause me stress. It doesn't cause anything else stress. When I'm mad at the, the way the concrete's turning out, the concrete doesn't give a shit. I do. Yeah. Whereas if I just go, Oh, okay, well, this is a problem. Here's a solution. It's just more work. It is what it is. There's nothing I can do about it other than do the thing, move forward. And so there's times where I'm good at that and times where I'm not so good at that. You know, I wonder the, so if I think about the last few years of the pandemic, there's been a lot of um, volatility in the world. Um, and I think a lot of us, at least in the shorter term, were, were a little worse for the wear after like, I don't know, the last few years for a lot of us have just been hard. And so, you know, if you look at the data around, say, burnout in the workplace, Microsoft ran a survey and they said, over 50% of us right now are reporting that we're burnt out in the workplace. And that's kind of where we're at now. And if I think about like one of the stories that sticks with me is it was early, early in the pandemic where um, we were all working from home and 
because things had to change so quickly quickly in our workplaces, a lot of us that resulted in more more work. So my workload had increased dramatically. I'm super stressed out. Childcare keeps like like we have childcare one day, it shuts down the next day. Um, you know, so there's so much volatility and stress. And then I walk out one morning and I'm looking at the sky and it's it's pink, like it's this unnatural pink color. And I, I, I kept squinting. I'm like, are, is something wrong with my eyes? Like, what is going on? And it turned out that was when there were some severe wildfires in Northern California. So they, the smoke had filled the sky in such a way that the light that was filtering in, it came through as this unnatural pink color. And so that was like one of my, my, uh, I don't know I'd call it a breaking point, but it's like burned into my brain where I was already stressed out like to the max. And then I walked out and it looked like reality had broken because the sky was the wrong color. And so I think where we're at today, looking at those burnout rates, like we're, we're kind of like, we're just trying to claw our way back to normal. And so we're, you know, there's this recognition of like, yeah, we need to self-regulate. We need to learn to dance with the system. Um, I think a lot of us are just struggling to show up as good enough right now. My hope is that if I look at some of the research on uh, what happens in things like war-torn countries, there is this period of like uh, long mental health challenge, people being much worse for the wear. And some of that is like recovery at the individual level. Some is at the societal level. You come out in a period of post-traumatic growth where I, my hope is that you add another one to two to three years of this and we come out actually as more resilient, more flexible, more able to dance with the system because of the last few years. So I don't think we're there yet, but that is my hope. I don't disagree with that. And I think that, like that highlights one of, the, one of the intentions behind doing this all and doing this work is – like I've grown to the point where I, I realized that I was holding on to so much resentment, so much trauma, so much shit, and I wasn't aware of it. And that drove me to have a lot of limiting beliefs and thoughts and insecurities that weren't benefiting me. And I needed to create a change. And in creating that change, I realized like how much of this shit is present in all of us. And we need to create change. We need to create change in ourselves. Like the system, whatever you want to call it, nothing is going to do it for you except for you. We have to learn to take radical personal responsibility at every fucking level around every corner or it's just going to stay the same. We can't wait for anybody else to do it. And so like that's been a big part of my intention is wanting to do this, wanting to do this work, wanting to have these conversations I think about it as one of my main motivating factors is I want to pass on as little of my pain and hurt and trauma as possible onto my kid. And the only way that we can get past these generational traumas, whether it be a pandemic, whether it be a war, whether it be adoption, whether it be racism, is we have to put the work in intentionally together and individually to create and cultivate that space for ourselves. And so like the idea for me of 
healing versus healed is I'm on a healing journey. I'll never be healed and that's okay, but I'm going to do everything I can to get to that point because I want it to be so that my kid or my kid's kid can be healed. And I, in my head, I don't think that can happen until we get a couple of generations in of this very intentional care. And one of the things that really hit home for me with that was a, a few, quite a few months back, actually probably like two or three years back, I was in the yard doing yard work and the neighbor's dog was barking again. And I, in my head, I'm just, I'm fucking pissed. I'm like, oh, I'm sick and tired of this dog barking all the time. It wakes me up in the middle of the night. And I'm just like so angry. And I stop for a second and I'm like, why am I so angry about this? Well, because I'm not getting any sleep. The dog keeps waking me up. And I ask myself, okay, let's ask a radical personal responsibility question. Why am I so easy to wake up? And I started thinking about that, like, okay, let's, let's keep going with that. Let's take this into myself. And I meditate on it. And I dropped into this flow state of a, a great meditation. And all of a sudden it, it came to me in the idea that my grandpa fought in World War II. That instilled this fight or flight response in his nervous system that got passed on to my dad. My dad's very much fight or flight on off like a, like a switch. And that got passed on to me. And now I'm doing this work and now's my chance to turn that down. Whoa. Mm. Holy shit. Like some of this has passed on down to me from my grandpa. And I have slept so much better since that day, since that meditation, that dog has not woken me up one time. Wow. That is so interesting. So it's comes back to you, right? If you want to show up, mm-hmm. if you want the best life for your daughter possible. It's not necessarily about her trauma. It's about your trauma. And same thing for me. And same thing for every person listening to this right now. Like we're either, we're doing one of two things. We're contributing to the trauma cycle or we're contributing to the healing cycle. It's a choice and the choice is yours. How do you want to contribute? Yeah. I, it's interesting. We we've anchored on this conversation. It's about parenting. Um, in the workplace, I've been doing a lot of advocacy around mental health, and one of the eye openers for me has been so much of my focus around this for for my career has been how do we do better in the here and now, like in terms of the programs we offer to support one another, the way that we change our culture or or shape our culture so that it's we can support each other better um, or take care of ourselves and each other better within the system. I've had the privilege to go to a few conferences with students from the next generation, like Gen Z students and getting towards the tail end of Gen Z. They already get all this stuff. Like they're, they, they have their own different baggage, but my baggage, like, you know, we've, uh, their parents did a great job of not passing a lot of that on. So they're like, yeah, we already get this stuff about mental health. We have to do our work on ourselves. We have to design systems that that um, nurture our mental health. And so I have great hope for the future. But now I'm I'm not close to retirement. I'm probably somewhere near around the, the apex of my career at age 44. 
and I can see, and I'm, I'm having to have these conversations with myself of like, how much of my energy goes to fixing the system now versus making sure that I'm handing the baton in a really powerful way to the next generation and, and doing everything I can to lift them up because they have a head start. And I, I see so much hope in like, oh, you're at a great starting point. It, it's not unlike the powerlifting world where every generation, it seems like they're 10% stronger than the last generation. And so I, you know, I know sometimes if you look at the world, it can look pretty bleak, but I see so much hope because in the next generation, I'm like you're 10% ahead already. How do I get you 15, 20% ahead? Uh, and um, I'll, I'll do the best so I can live a good life too. But I think you're the ones who's going, who are going to uh, quote unquote, save the world, even though that's, that's not really a, yeah. <laughs> a, a, a job that's ever done, but you're the ones who are really going to push things forward. That's, that's definitely a cool way to look at it. It's similar. The, the planting of the seeds analogy that I said earlier, like I think about it, I'm not going to change the world, but I'm going to plant the seed that changes the world. Right. Yes. And, and the seed that I plant will be in, be in the person's head that, that does the really big thing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Whether, whether it's Rosalie, whether it's your listeners, those you coach, uh, I know you're planting a lot of incredible seeds. Trying to, uh, with the help of people like you, we can, we can definitely do some work. Go, going back to, to parenting, one other, I think game changing idea for me that it, it, it doesn't necessarily provide specific clarity on what to do in terms of a parent, but it's very much a mindset. There is a professor at, I think it's University of Colorado Boulder, um, Yuko Manakata, and she uh, she's a professor of psychology and cognitive development. She did a uh, TED talk on how um, cognitive development for parents affects the cognitive development of children, and one of the you know, key insights that she offered was if you look across the research, if we put out, take out socioeconomic factors in, and look at like child approaches to raising a child, none of them show better or worse outcomes dramatically than others. And so the way that she interpreted that as, as a parent and as an academic is it's not that none of it matters. It, it's not that it doesn't matter what you do. The really freeing thing is that you are just free to love your child and that's it. And at first I, I was like, that's too simple. But then if you put on the mindset of like, but love is an active thing, love is a journey, there's infinity in there. And so if I, you, now all I have to do is reflect on within the lives we want to build how do I want to love my child? That has, when I can hold on to that, that has worked as a much better foundation for how I show up as a father versus, I don't know, anything else that I have, um, I've considered. That's good. I like that. It definitely, I think aligns with some of the thoughts of that I've learned from positive parenting solutions where every child's most basic need is to feel a sense of belonging and significance. And, Mm -hmm. you can provide that to them. Well, the idea is to provide that to them in a positive way. And like, that's it. 
right? Like giving them that love, giving them your love, pouring your love into them, particularly unconditionally and not necessarily conditionally, not, oh, I'll, I'll love you when you do this. I, I love you no matter what. Mm-hmm. Like that, that fills that bucket. And outside of that, then going riffing off of the, the Ruiz family. Don Miguel Ruiz, the author of Four Agreements, and his son, Jose, and Don Jr., uh, they all do amazing stuff. They talk about how, uh, you know, a belief requires year agreement. It only exists when you say yes to it, no matter what it is. Any belief requires you to say yes to it. A truth doesn't. A truth exists regardless of whether Mm -hmm. you agree to it or not. It doesn't care what you think. It exists. And when I connect with that and think about that, there's also very, very, very few truths that exist in this world. The vast majority of it is a construct and or a belief that requires us to say yes to it. And the second we say no to it, it no longer exists. Hmm. I mean, you can, if we make it like religious, because it's an easy one, and there's lots of people that believe in Christianity, there's lots of people that believe in uh, Catholicism, there's lots of people that believe in Buddhism. At the end of the day, all those things require somebody to say yes to it. Yeah. I, I hadn't thought about it that way. Like the, the you know, we, the power of belief is, um, it's palpable. It's, it's, it's yep. incredible. I hadn't also thought about, and the moment that you say no to a belief, it's just kind of poof. It's right. It's gone. And so it, it is, is a choice. And I mean, people talk about it as faith. Well, this is my faith. This is what I believe. That is correct. That is what your faith is. That is what you believe. And therefore it exists for you. Mm-hmm. And I know that can be really helpful for me in in parenting, in mental health, is understand what do I believe? Why do I believe this? Does it serve me or not? Can I say yes to it? Can I say no to it? Where Where is it? What is it? If it doesn't serve me and I continue to say yes to it, why is my attachment there to it? And can I break that attachment so that I can say no to it so that it no longer exists in my life or exists in how I operate? And you know, for for what it's worth, anybody that's listening that is religious and of faith, that's not to say that any of that is wrong at any way. It's just to acknowledge the fact that there is different belief systems across the world and across different cultures. And no one of them is necessarily wrong, bad, or incorrect. Yeah, I recently, I, I, w- I won't, I won't name names. Uh, I, it's, it's one of our, one of our mutual friends, uh, and, and I love the guy. Um, we got into a, (laughs) an argument on, on Instagram messages about whether, uh, capitalism is fundamentally evil or if the issue is human nature. And my stance was I'm, I'm much more a, a centrist on capitalism. Like I, I have plenty of criticisms about capitalism, but I lean much more on like, I think humanity itself needs to evolve um, versus, you know, if we don't evolve, whether like you want to point at the trauma of capitalism, we'll just build another system that has other traumas as an output. Um, 
and this person was very determined to uh, to share. Like they've clearly done a lot of research on the specific evils of capitalism. So I just had to put a pin in that one. But I think the um, connecting into what you were saying about beliefs, um, I think we can think about like none of us. I I, I can isolate it down to the unit of my family but none of us exists out of a larger system. And so uh, back to what I was saying about like regenerative systems and thinking about the roles you have to play. I think right now as, as someone who works for like a big corporation and like uh, benefits from capitalism, benefits from US democracy, I have to be very discerning about what do I believe versus what do I participate in for the good of building the life I want and or for my family. And those are very different. And then based on that, like what do I want to pass on uh, to my daughter versus where do I want her starting with a clean slate? Yeah. Like, I don't know, like a really hard one to debate is like, do I want her to be like a diehard patriot or do I want her like questioning everything about American society? And I'm like, Look, I don't know, man. She's five. Like, I don't want to tackle that one right now because I'm I'm busy and I'm tired. But um, I think all those things, like, they're now that you bring up this differentiation between belief versus truth versus like for some of those, if I pressure myself, there's probably a, a lot of things I conform to where I'm like, I'm not in the belief bucket, but I know the role I need to play to participate in the system, and now I. I think it is my role also to help guide my daughter in thinking through what she wants as she will participate or not participate in a lot of those systems as well. Yep. And the thing about something like that is you might not necessarily believe in that system, but you believe in the participation of that system. Say, say more about that. I'm, I'm well, trying to get my head around there that. Is, if there's this system or this thing that you don't fully believe in, but participating in it gets you the thing that you want over here, then you believe in the participation of the system to get what you want. Ah, I see. Right? Yeah. It's kind of like one of the ideas of when when people say, oh, I don't have a choice. Like, I have to do the dishes. Yeah, but it's about perspective and reframing. If you say, oh, I choose to do the dishes because I really value eating off of clean dishes instead of dirty plates – then, then you're turning it into a choice. Like you can either make it a begrudging choice or you can make it a positive choice. And depending on how you choose to spin it and look at it, we'll have a, will determine the quality of the experience, right? Like mm -hmm. I, you can be dishes. It could be any of those things that a lot of times we tend to loathe. Oh, I got to do my laundry. I get to do my laundry. I choose to do my laundry because I value clean clothes and I have that privilege. Thank you. I'm grateful versus, Oh, I got to do the fucking laundry again. Now I'm going to have a bad time mm -hmm. and a bad experience. So like, how do you want to choose to participate? Right? So there could be that system that maybe you don't believe in that system and you don't want that system and you, maybe there could be a better system, but you're not capable of changing the system because the system's bigger than you are, but you believe in the participation of it. You know, I mean, I, how many times do we say, oh, I don't yeah. want to pay fucking taxes because I don't believe in the system yet. If you choose to not pay taxes, <laughs> well, there's probably going to be some bad shit that happens in your life. 
unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah, it's a pretty robust system <laughs> right, with clear right. rules like, there. <laughs> there's a whole lot of it that I don't believe in. For the longest time when I was single in Alaska and I didn't have kids, I'd look at my tax bill and I'd be like, why the fuck am I paying more in taxes than my friend who has kids? I'm not even sending anybody to the school system. I'm paying thousands and thousands of dollars yeah. into this system that I'm not using. What's up with that? That's bullshit. Well, I can choose to not participate in that system yep. that I don't believe in and probably go to jail or pay heavy fines because the system at that point is stronger than me. I could maybe go off grid and live like a hermit, go to, go to a cash mm -hmm. system so that they can't track, but I don't want to do that. Right. So there's, there's that level too. Sometimes you got to, sometimes you got to play. Yeah. Wrong. We interrupt the show with a brief message. This podcast was created through a strong sense of belonging. A tremendous amount of personal growth has had to occur in order for me to be able to create the Project Unchained podcast, my gift to you. Being vulnerable is scary, and it's not something I've always been able to do. I've had to create confidence in myself and what I believed in. No one was going to do that for me. I had to do that for myself. And guess what? You can too. Creating self-confidence begins with a strong sense of belonging. You create belonging through internal validation. Well, how do you do that, you might ask? I got you. I've created this online self-development course that is designed specifically to help you build a strong sense of belonging within yourself, the ability to internally validate your existence, have the confidence you desire, and grow your self-worth that you never thought possible. The Belonging Blueprint is here to guide you every step of the way. To get more information and to enroll today, you can click the link in the show notes or message me directly. Now back to the show. Well, on that, how do you think about, so back to the, the topics of like belonging, um, you know, helping a Rosalie or, or for me, helping my daughter Miki or Kira feel like they belong in a community. But if I think about the various communities I belong to, each one's a subculture and they do have their, they may be stated or unstated expectations about like and in the, within this subculture you do these things and your belonging is contingent on them like if i think about the powerlifting community there's probably some things that would get you ejected from the community that aren't malicious but it's kind of like yeah like you have to believe in this strength sport you have to contribute as either an athlete minimally a fan but as an athlete a judge or other official a spotter loader coach um, so there, there's on the one hand, you want, like, I want for Miki to be able to freely express and show up, but then belonging just within human systems is contingent on conforming to the expectations and norms of the established community. Right. No, that's a good question. I like, I like that. It's a challenging question. And I think the first place. Just like you said, back to self, reflection of self. If we think of the definition of belonging, the exact definition of belonging is an affinity for a place or a situation. We feel a sense of belonging. So first and foremost, we have to feel a sense of belonging for the place, the place that we always are inside us. We have to feel a sense of belonging in and of myself wholly and completely for myself. Nothing else outside of me 
matters as long as I feel a sense of belonging in and of myself, in my, in my home. Like if we get spiritual about it and we think about our, our body as the place and our soul as the thing in our place. And so when we, a human are connected with our soul, we feel at home. We feel that sense of belonging through self-connection, through self-awareness. Can you talk about, I think that's a really important point. I want to make sure we're like understanding it all and any, and any listeners are understanding in the same way. Say more about uh, belonging to yourself as well as what it looks like to not belong to yourself. So think about it like, think about it like your home and your family. When you walk inside your home and there's connection with other people, there's appreciation and gratitude with other people, and there's that love with other people, you feel connected to them. On a, on a deep level, you feel connected to them. That's not just sitting on the couch with them in the same room. You feel a bond. That would be akin to like belonging, feeling belonging in your domicile, in your home with your family. Now, if you consider your body, the human body, the physical body, the home for your soul, that belonging is kind of the same thing. You have that sense of belonging inside you because you are connected. Your human physical body is connected to the soul. You are, mm-hmm. you know what is important to you and what matters to you and fills your bucket with joy and gratitude and love. And you can provide that mm. to yourself so that you feel whole and complete in and of yourself. Nothing else is needed. Just you. You can be alone and feel that sense of belonging mm. when you are by yourself. If you aren't connected with yourself, if there is that disconnection, you walk in the house, say it's back to the family. You walk in the house. Why didn't anybody make me dinner? Why aren't the dishes done? Why isn't my laundry done? Who's supposed to vacuum? Who's supposed to do this? Why isn't this done? What the fuck? Come on, people. And everybody's shouting and yelling. You're all disconnected. There's no connection. There's no love. There's no appreciation. It's just, it is transactional. I do this for you. You do this for me. It's transactional. That's disconnection. Now, that's when the same thing with yourself right? If you're not feeling a sense of belonging with and of yourself, everything is bland. Everything is a problem. It's a disconnection. You don't know what you want. You don't know what you need. You don't know what you feel. Or another way to look at it is, I feel anxious, but I don't know why. And you can't ever connect with why you feel anxious. When you have that sense of belonging and you're connected with yourself, you can connect with your feelings and understand what they're telling you Hmm. so that you can like a way to look at feelings. Is there a compass? They're a guide. They're guiding you. We could say in a simple form that negative emotions are guiding you away from something that you don't want. And positive emotions are guiding you towards something you want. When you have a positive feeling, a need of yours is being met. When you have a negative feeling, a need of yours is not being met. So, what is it? We have to be able to connect to the feeling and understand it and discern it. What need of mine is being met so that I can continue meeting it? What need of mine, what need of mine is not being met so that I can change it and meet it? 
And when we have that sense of belonging and we're connected with ourself, we can understand what that is and express it and facilitate it and talk about it and communicate it. When we don't have that sense of belonging, we can't, we can't connect with it. And so if we're disconnected from our emotions, it's your fault. You made me feel this way. You upset me rather than understanding that something that when you're upset, it's a need of yours that's going unmet and you need to talk about it. Nobody makes you feel anything ever. What somebody does might be a catalyst to a feeling you have, but they don't ever make you feel anything. They're yours. Don't ever give that power away. The second we say somebody makes us feel something, we're giving our power away. We're giving it to them. They now own us. And so that belonging is that connection to that. What is my emotion for me in my place. Yeah. I, I think that, uh, I, I wanted to really flesh that out. Um, I know for, for myself, like, I, I think that was like a starved connection for a long time until I went on mental health leave. Right. So I had to like, I had to go on short-term disability and essentially like tap out of my professional life for a little over two months to start to reestablish that and then start to build in a practice of staying connected with that and like, and going forward and getting back into like a busy career, it's been a real challenge to like, like I have to like hold on to that space with like claws um, because it, like the busyness of life, the distractions like will do um, they all kind of like squeeze that the air out of that relationship. And so uh, for, I think for me and, and for any listeners out there who might be like me, I think hearing that detailed out is really, really important right. and enlightening and goes back to that really being at the core of this whole conversation before we even talk about parenting and the relationship with the child, it's relationship with ourselves. Agreed. And it, another way to, to put it too, like an affinity for a place when you have that sense of belonging, you have that affinity for a place yourself, you're good solo. You, again, you're whole and complete. But when you don't have that, you're always looking for something or somebody else to fill you and make you complete. And ain't nobody or no thing ever going to actually do that. Agreed. So it's all on self. The other reason why radical mm -hmm. personal responsibility is because there's nobody that can go plug in your sense of belonging but you. And when you have that sense of belonging, that's when you can really show up in the world and participate in ways that can make you wildly proud. You know, and that doesn't mean that like you'll always have that. Like I think about it just yesterday. I had a moment where I was frustrated about some some things that were outside of my control and I lost my grounding. I kind of took it out on Vanessa a little bit and we separated. We walked away a little bit angry and upset with each other. And I reflected on it. I'm like, dude, you are participating in life in a way that you do not want to participate in life. Let's check ourselves. And I re-engaged the conversation and I'm like, hey, I'm sorry I'm communicating violently. That's not how I want to participate in this. Let me try again. And boom, it shifted. Because I regrounded myself in my belonging in the way that I can participate in the world so that I have that affinity for self in my place, in my vessel. Good for you. That's 
that's a really difficult thing to do. It is. <laughs> yeah. It I mean, is. It, 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 that's like uh, – it's on par with like you just like horribly missed a second bench press and uh, you came back in and you like nailed it at an RP7. Or in your case, your squat. <laughs> yes, what, exactly. That's what you did at Nationals. It's like, yes. Oh, uh, so, well <laughs> – yeah, well, well done. I would have, I would high fived you had I been in the room, which, which would have been weird in, in and of, it, of itself, <laughs> <laughs> for sure, for sure. So, lots of really cool stuff. Always coming back to self, which to me, I, to me, I love. Anytime I'm struggling, I'm, I have to remind myself, like, what am I? What participation role am I denying? Because that's where my struggle is, and that always helps guide me forward. And so when we think about the project here with Project Unchained and ending on a self-care tool, instead of talking about what your, what your like go-to self-care tool is, what is, what's the one thing that allows you to be your best dad and show up for your kids as the best dad possible that you can be? And how can that help other father show up to be the best dad that they can be let me see if I, i'm thinking more about a moment and i'm trying to think about how to make this practical yeah um because it was it was pretty specific to me and i, I think this goes back to belonging to yourself i think the moment i felt most connected with my daughter and th this was before we adopted our second daughter but the most the, the time I felt the most connected was when I had made a breakthrough in my own um, self-healing work and I could see how so much of my anxiety and achievement orientation was old baggage related to um, psychological abuse I had experienced as a child. And I could see like, I think it, I could see like, okay, that is something that I experienced, but that is not my essence. And so I could, I could put those things, I could separate them. And it's, it's not like it disappeared overnight, like the work continues, but you can kind of see like, okay, who is me and my purest, most loving self? And who is, you know, what is the baggage I've accumulated? We'll call it the scar tissue I've accumulated uh, across life. And because I had just kind of like seen that and processed it, like uh, the uh, ability to put it aside, you know, just for a few hours afterwards, seeing my daughter, it was, you know, like probably the, um, the some of the happiest hours I've had with her. It was just all fun, all cuddles, no, um, no anxiety. And I fight to get back to that feeling as often as I can. And sometimes I can get there and on a good day. And then some days I can't. Um, but at least I know it. I know what that place is. And so if I had to make it practical, oh man, this is, this is like turning <laughs> – it, like going back to a powerlifting analogy, it it would be like, well, how did you deadlift 500 pounds? I'm like, I don't know. I went in the garage and I deadlifted like for years and got better and better and it was painful. Um, so I don't know that there's a, a practical tool in there other than 
if you do the work to build that belonging with yourself, like even if you can just get a glimpse of that reconnection, it's going to get better and better. And it's going to reflect into the way that you show up to love your, your child, the way you love your partner, um, the way, the way you love the other people in your life. Right. When I think about that and relate it to, to powerlifting and, or any of this stuff and think about like, how did you get to a 500 pound deadlift? Well, I, I executed a process over and over and over again, right? The process of training. So if we think about it through that lens, we execute the process over and over and over again. For something like this, that's awareness, cultivating awareness. How can I be aware of my feelings? How can I be aware of the connection? How can I be aware of what this feeling does and creates with my daughter? And the only way, one of the only ways to cultivate awareness is you got to learn to turn the distractions off. Television, the phone, different things that take you out of your body because it's all about awareness in the mm. body and in your learning to have that affinity for a place. Actually, uh, so I will make something very, uh, a very specific recommendation based cool. on that. And I need to, I, I have uh, fallen off the bandwagon on this and this is a good reminder for me to get back on right. it. Off of Etsy, I actually um, uh, ordered this like custom box that it has etched on it something like put your phone away comma hug more cats and so i used to just put my phone in there to make sure i couldn't see it and i couldn't touch it and then i would go i'd hug the cats i'd be with my wife i'd be with my daughter or now my daughters um if you can find that place where it's out of sight out of mind and make a ritual of it so you know during this time for this amount of time I put that phone away and I do not touch it. Um, I think that can really start to move you in that direction and start to get you a practice of non-distraction. Yeah, I can hear, I can relate to that. My phone for the longest time, I just turned it on only vibrate and now it's on nothing almost always. <laughs> like it, yeah. there's nothing. And <laughs> I like it that way. Screen down. So I don't see the screen light up. Just, I will look at you on my time when I want to. Yes. Which is a, a great tool. Uh, I really like that. I think a lot of people, when you can instill that as a habit, it will add a lot of value to your life and your experience and your parenting and your connection with your, with your family. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, a parenting tool that I'd like to throw out there before we sign off here for the day. It's one, I don't recall if I've shared it or not. I might have, but it was one I learned from Vanessa as I learned a lot of things from her. The idea of I'm a big, scary human, and I need to be aware of that to a child is really important. I might be a small adult. I might be a short guy. But to a six-year-old, I'm a big, scary motherfucker. I'm bald. I got a beard. I got big muscles. It's intimidating. So the thing is, all of us dads are that to our kids to some extent. Especially if you're like me, I have a very neutral face all the time. I'm not a very smiley person. And it's not because I'm angry or mad. It's just my face. I just don't smile a lot. And, you know, I can smile, but it's just not my my resting face. And I guess I have resting bitch face. <laughs> you, you could uh, you could turn it into a resting belonging face. <laughs> still still <Right>. RBF. <laughs> so... But the idea of connecting with that 
is like I'm scary. I I need to soften. I need to not be so scary. That's my responsibility in that relationship. And one of the simplest ways to do that, anytime the second I start to feel her and I disconnect just a little bit, boom, I got to drop down. I got to like literally get on one knee, sometimes even lower so that she's not looking up at me. We're either eye to eye or she's looking down at me. And it immediately takes some of that intimidation factor away and it changes and turns things around, especially in the moments when there's something going differently than what I want it to or need it to. And I need to create a little bit more direction in the things that are happening. That creates the connection for us before the correction is me getting down on her level. And that can be so beneficial, so beneficial. So I, I encourage everybody to give that a try. That's, that's awesome. I, you know, I, I, I just realized, so, um, I, I, you did talk about this in the last podcast episode we did, and I said I made the joke like, "Well, to me, you're you're a huge dude because <laughs> I'm, I'm only five foot three. And now that I am reflecting on like, well, how does my daughter show up with me? She's she's really tall and she is freakishly strong. I think she's already seeing like into the future, like I'm going to be able to take this dude pretty <laughs> soon. And so she, I don't think she has any of that fear of me. She's like constantly trying to take me down. Um, and I, I think that's a pretty wonderful thing. Yeah, definitely. It's good for our kids to not be scared of us. Yes. And I suppose a barometer, a gauge to know if your kid is scared of you or not is their willingness to open up to you. And if they don't, if they don't want to talk to you, if you got to sit there and pry it out of them all the time, it might be time to reassess. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Newton, I, I super appreciate your time again. And I really appreciate you giving those kids of yours a chance at life and a really good chance at life. Not every kid has that. Not every kid has what in a biological parent, the love that you show for your kid through showing up to do this work for yourself. So I, man, I love you. And I really appreciate the fact that you're showing up like this for yourself and showing up for those kids and and giving them a chance that they might not have had, or probably wouldn't have had without you in this world. Thank you, Ross. I, I love you too. And these conversations and our relationship, they, they help me be a better dad for, for those kids. And we're, we're so grateful to have them. And I'm, I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful for these conversations. Thank you so much for making the space. Thank you, my friend. Thanks for joining Project Unchained today. It's important to note that I'm not a doctor nor a licensed therapist. I'm just a guy who is passionate about helping empower others to break free from their limiting thoughts and beliefs to have extraordinary life experiences. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. That will ensure that this podcast can reach more people. We're more powerful together, so please do share this with others. I'm always happy to engage with you, so please do reach out via social media or email if you'd like to chat. A special thank you to my very talented cousin, Galen Lee, for the intro and outro music to this show. The song is Lost in the Woods from her 2018 album, Learning How to Stay. You can find Galen's albums on Bandcamp, Spotify, and ViolinScratches.com. Until next time, make your life experience extraordinary. Let's get unchained.
Give yourself away.